Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for loving us and for um, equipping us, and Lord, we pray now that you would speak to our hearts um, and plow what needs to be plowed, and just have your way with us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 12, if you would. Jeremiah 12, while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you we're going to mix it up a little bit today uh, by reading just one chapter, and uh, we're going to probably reference, we're going to kind of flip around a little bit, and we're going to do a little cross-referencing and some of that kind of stuff. If that's, um, uh, if that's distracting to you, that's fine. You can just kind of listen along and all that, but if, you can, uh, if you're up for it, uh, I think there is something about hearing hearing in your ears and reading with your eyes uh, that uh, probably helps it to go, go deep. Um, the reason we're pausing a little bit is uh, because I believe this chapter, I wouldn't say pausing, we're slowing down, we're just doing one chapter today. Uh, this chapter is um, a bit of a standalone chapter from the other chapters in Jeremiah. Uh, we've been talking about sort of the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been preaching to the nation of Judah in the time before the Babylonians are going to come and, and conquer Judah. And this chapter, we turn inward a bit to look at Jeremiah the man. And I think in that, there are a lot of lessons for us. Um, I know for me, um, for sure. So consider this. In our lives, we have to deal with the world, right? We have to deal with other people. We have to deal with circumstances. Um, you might say we get the privilege of dealing with people. You might say we get the privilege of dealing with circumstances. We have the privilege of overcoming problems and challenges and difficulties and all that. But along the way, there's another piece of it that kind of runs parallel to that, and that is me and my relationship with the Lord, right? So there's kind of what I, I think of it like this. There's what I do, and there's who I am. Does that make sense? And what I do, you know, I do what I do and, and all that. And I try to do the right thing and I try not to do the wrong thing and all that. But along the way, there's who I am. And I think sometimes we, we uh, maybe don't neglect the who I am, but sometimes we don't maybe focus on the who I am as much as we might. And so as Jeremiah kind of does that and, and God speaks to his heart a little bit, I think this gives us the opportunity. And it uh, gives us the opportunity to kind of think about this and, and apply it. And I think as a result, at least for me, this chapter uh, stands out in my mind. I think of it like this. This is, a, this is kind of the example I came up with. I'm a husband, right? Christian husband. That means I'm supposed to live out my, uh, my husbandry according to the Scripture. Is that fair? Have I lost anybody yet? Okay, Scripture gives me some instructions about being a husband, right? So let's just hone it down just for a minute. Let's say the New Testament. New Testament gives me instructions about being a husband, right? That's what I'm talking about. Who was that? Thank you. Um, by the way, uh, the resounding sound of that affirmation came largely from women. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Wives who long for that biblical husband. Uh, but anyway, so check this out. 
Does the New Testament give me a lot of instruction about being a husband? Trick question. Trick question. Sort of. So let's unpack it. Is that fair? Ephesians chapter 5 tells me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Right? Colossians, I believe, 3 says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. So far, so good? 1 Peter chapter 3 tells me to uh, dwell with my wife with understanding, in an understanding way, giving honor to her as to the weaker vessel. And, I, and that means she's a little more delicate. It doesn't mean she's weaker, weaker. It means she's delicate. It means she breaks easily. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, not her, but her. Uh, so I'm supposed to give honor to my wife and dwell with her with understanding so that my prayers are not hindered right? Is that a lot of instruction? Let me just review the previous question. Uh, I just explained to you what the New Testament says to husbands in about 12 seconds, right? You get it? Get the point? I'm supposed to love her like Christ loved the church. I'm supposed to love her and not be bitter toward her, and I'm supposed to dwell with her with understanding and give her honor. And I would suggest that that pretty much encompasses what the Bible tells me to do as a husband. Right? Pretty straight up. So, where do we go from there? <laughs> we apply it. Now, men, does, it, does that take 12 seconds? No. That's a lifetime experiment. Right? And so I think there's some times where we might... Uh, sort of come across a biblical truth and what we then need to do is just sort of chew on it and learn it and experience it and practice it and fail and try again and let it become a part of who we are to then become who we are. Does that make sense? Because Loving a wife like Christ loved the church doesn't happen like that. It happens as a part of our lifelong uh, work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, really. And so I think all that to say, this chapter that we're going to read about, Jeremiah chapter 12, I think gives us some biblical truth, but I think the challenge for us, if I can kind of sort of set the groundwork for us a little bit, the challenge for us is not to say, oh yeah, I get it. But the challenge is for us to say, oh, that needs to be me. Does that make sense? Fair enough? Everybody ready? Here we go. Jeremiah says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I, when I plead with you. Yet, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You've planted them, yes, you've, they've taken root. They grow, yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. So let's look at that again. Jeremiah says, Lord, you are righteous. Yet, I have to question your judgment. Anybody ever done that? Okay. 
Raise your hand if you've not done that, liar. Just kidding. <laughs> We've all done it, right? We've all done it. Jeremiah, a cool guy, right? A godly man, says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Think about that for a second. Like, if God were, if it were even possible, if God were sitting here, and I said, God, you're righteous, I'll give you that. But let me talk to you about your decision-making. Does anybody think, besides me think that's crazy? And yet we all do it. I would argue that we all do it. We've all done it at some point or another, sometimes more often than others, sometimes uh, without knowing it, sometimes with knowing it. And whenever we do that, let me say, whenever we say, God, I'm questioning your, your judgment, your decision-making ability, I'm questioning why you do what you do. Number one, we lack God's perspective right? I mean, that's an understatement, but it just needs to be said. We tremendously lack God's perspective. We lack the magnitude of God's wisdom, right? And frankly, it's off the graph arrogant for me to think I have any suggestions to give to God, right? I mean, so I want to kind of... Um, I want to paint the picture of how sort of extreme we're talking about, right? And yet I also want to kind of paint the picture that we always do it. I don't want to say we always do it. We all do it at some point or another. Is that fair? We all do it at some point or another. And so I think we have to keep in mind when we ask God these things, hey, why do you do that? I, don't, I wouldn't do it that way. Or my favorite, if I were God, dot, 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 finish the sentence, right? Those are arrogant statements. You could even make a case that it's arrogant to ask God why, the, the why questions sometimes. Now, sometimes we can ask God why. Uh, like, I like that um, my brain goes back to... Um, uh, the Virgin Mary and um, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, right? The angel came and told Mary, hey, you're going to have a child. And she says, how does that work? Because I've never been with a man, okay? That's a why question. It's an honest why question. John the Baptist, I'm sorry, John the Baptist's father, Zachariah, Zacharias, was uh, in the temple, the angel came to him and said, you know, your wife Elizabeth's going to have a child and he's going to be John the Baptist and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, mm, how does that work? We're old. We're too old for that. And somehow, <clears throat> in the midst of that, Zacharias was, was disciplined for that response, right? And Mary was like honored and kind of explained how this is going to work and you know, you found favor with God and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a, there's a different heart in which we can ask the why questions. Is that fair? But we've got to be very careful not to ask the, the why like if I were God 
kind of questions. You know, if I were you, I'd have done it this way. You've got to be super careful about that. So that's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's like, God, you're awesome, you're righteous, but I just don't get why the wicked prospers. It's almost like you've planted them and you've blessed them and you've, you're, you're not being fair or righteous or just. And so God's going to answer that question. But before, before we go there, let me, and I told you we'd flip around a little bit, let me encourage it. First of all, I just kind of, um, I dogged on us by telling us that we all do this, right? I told us that what Jeremiah just did was incre- in, off the graph, arrogant and out of line and all of that. And then I told us all that we all do that, right? So which means we're all off the graph, arrogant and out of line and all that. But we're in good company. Turn back to the left, to Job, right before Psalm. We've referenced this uh, recently, but it keeps coming back in my mind. Job 23. Now, you know the background. Job, was, uh, Job went through incredible hardship uh, without really knowing the, the big picture, the full purposes of God. We know it because uh, we see the dialogue between God and Satan in the first couple of chapters, but Job didn't read those first couple of chapters. And so um, uh, here's where he is. Chapter 23, verse 1, Job says, uh, it says, Then Job answered and said, and I'm going to read this um, if, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to read this as, if I th- as how I think Job would have read this. Is that fair? Kind of a role play thing, right? Kind of a prelude for poetry night. Okay. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. Wow. There, the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. You like this guy? God calls him blameless. God calls him blameless. And the point I want to make is, that's what we sound like sometimes. And I want to make the point that that is arrogant arrogant and so you know the story toward the end of job god reveals himself to job curiously god never answers job's questions job basically asks why god never answers the why question what god instead does is he reveals himself to job He reveals his majesty and his goodness and his glory. And he says, by the way, Job, were you there when I uh, basically created the universe? If if you're if you got so much wisdom, tell me what how did that how did that work out? And God honestly was a little sarcastic with Job. Um, And then at the end, God, God had said, you know, I'm going to talk now. And then you answer. 
And here's how it goes at the end, chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, it's the same man who read those words that I just talked about, or that I just read. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what do we see with Job? Job went from tremendous arrogance to tremendous humility and repentance. How did he get there? Did he get there because God answered all of his questions? No, he got there because he gained a, a realization of who God is. Now, does God answer all of our questions? No, but does God reveal himself to us? Yes, he reveals to us his, him, his character. He reveals to us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit to reveal himself to us. And so God reveals himself to us, which should then bring us to Job 42, not Job 23. And so, lest you think we're, you know, alone in this exercise of arrogance, Job is there with us. Anybody else? How about Asaph, one of the great psalmists? Turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So God is good, but I almost slid off the radar. Why? For I was envious of the boastful. I was envious of the, envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked... For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. This is kind of the same thing Jeremiah said, right? Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could ever wish. And then look down at verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who's, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, <clears throat> I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too, too painful for me. Verse 17, look at this. Until, until, I went into the sanctuary of God. I went into the sanctuary of God. I met the Lord. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. And then skip to 21. Thus my heart was grieved 
And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So Asaph goes through an interesting process here. He says, you know, God is good to Israel, but I almost slipped. I almost, I almost fell off the, off the radar because I was looking at, at evil people and feeling like, you know, they prosper. And then I came into the sanctuary of the Lord, and then I understood how I understood their end, and I realized they are going to get punished. And thus, verse 21, my heart was grieved. I was no longer bitter and envious of those people. I now had compassion for them because I knew what was going to happen to them. And that was burdensome to me. And then, who have I in heaven but you? And there's none on earth that I desire beside you. So Asaph goes through this same journey. Interestingly, Job is questioning God because he's looking to himself. Asaph is questioning God because he's looking to others. Turn to the far right, Habakkuk. After Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, uh, Habakkuk. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if you're in any of those Habakkuk's next. Now, Habakkuk is an interesting guy. He's a prophet probably around the same time as Jeremiah. It was before uh, the Babylonians are coming, or at least not exactly the same time as Jeremiah, but before the Babylonian invasion. It says the burden of the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? That's a judgment statement. God, I'm, I'm praying to you and you're not hearing me. Even cry out to you, violence. I'm, I'm telling you what's going on on earth. Violence. And you'll not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. Like, serving you doesn't matter. And justice never goes forth. Why bother, why bother obeying the law? Because justice never plays out. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. And so we won't read through, through the whole book of Habakkuk, but basically the book of Habakkuk is this dialogue back and forth between this whiny prophet and God. And God reveals some of his plans to Habakkuk. And then even then, Habakkuk kind of, well, wait a minute, God, I, I think you ought to do it this way. And over through the book, God reveals himself to Habakkuk until he gets to this point. Look at the end of this, for this book. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending of a book. Habakkuk chapter 3. Starting in verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled. 
My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. This sounds like Job, right? Like, whoa. I realized I just questioned God. That I might rest in the day of trouble, and when he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. God's going to do what he's going to do, and I'm going to let God be God. Look at this. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. Though, no, though the circumstances be horrible, though there's no fruit, no anything, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So what do you see here? Job looking at himself, right? Asaph looking at others. Habakkuk looking at the circumstances, right? And God just graciously brings all three of those guys and us and us to the point of seeing who he is, of revealing his goodness to us, and changing our perspective. God is capable of changing our perspective. And it's fascinating to me that in these situations, God never really answers their questions. In all three of them, God never really answers their questions. Because God's business is God's business. Can I say this? God never really answers these kinds of questions because God's business is God's business. Man's business is to humbly appreciate Him. And it's healthy to realize that God is good even if we don't fully understand. So back to Jeremiah chapter, uh, verse 3. He goes on. So keep our mindset, right? So we started out, we said Jeremiah's kind of whining to the Lord because he's looking at others, Right? We kind of whine to the Lord for various reasons, probably because we're either looking at others, looking at ourselves, or looking at our circumstances, right? And by the way, when you're doing that, how sensitive are you to the needs of others? How compassionate are we when we're doing that, right? Can you imagine, I always think of this like the book of Job, right? It's work to read through the book of Job, honestly. But Job had three friends, right? And they came to him, and, and what if one of them had a need? Would Job have seen it? I don't think so. Maybe not until the end. It says at the end, you know, God made everything right when Job prayed for his friends, right? After Job repented and took his eyes off of himself and saw the goodness of God, he could then minister to his friends. Prior to that time, he couldn't really minister to his friends because he was self-absorbed. Let me say this, when we're self-absorbed, we can't minister to anybody else. And I think we would all agree, we want to be able to be a blessing to other people. We want to be sensitive to the needs of other people. We want to pray for other people, but we can't do that if we're consumed with ourselves. We can't do that if we're consumed with, with the injustice in the world and how, why does that guy win and this guy loses? And we can't do that if we're, if we're obsessed with the circumstances of this life, right? Job, Asaph, Habakkuk. And so, Jeremiah goes on, verse 3. But you, O Lord, you know me. 
You've seen me and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How do you like that? Jeremiah is saying, I'm righteous. You know that. You've tested me. You've seen that I'm faithful. I've gone the distance. These guys are losers and these guys are unjust. Would you please like just (laughs) prepare them for the day of slaughter? That's a little harsh. Okay, that's a lot harsh. (laughs) Verse 4, how long will the land mourn? And the herbs of every field wither. The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, he will not see our final end. So, jo- so Jeremiah is saying, you know, even the world around him is suffering because of the un- injustice in the world, because of sinners. Is that God's business or Job? Or I keep saying Job. Is that God's business or Jeremiah's business? It's God's business. It's God's business to administer justice. And then God's answer is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. This busted me this week. I was having a little, uh, I forget what it even was, um, pity party uh, of sorts. You ever have one of those? If you call it a pity party party of sorts, it's not really a pity party. (laughs) So I had one of sorts, and uh, this busted me. God says, hey, Jerry. Your version may not say that. He says, hey, Jerry, if if you have run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? Ooh. And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? So again, did you catch this? God didn't answer his question. Jeremiah asked God a question. God didn't answer it. God comes back with a better question, right? Basically, If you're worn out now, how will you be able to do the impossible? Right? Because I think we would agree, if you lined me up at a starting line, right, and said, hey, Scott, I need you to run a foot race with a guy that's 59 years old and a bad knee and and a hip that hurts once in a while, right? I might be able to keep up with him, maybe, right? But if you say, hey, I want you to line up at the gate. You're in gate one, and a horse is in gate two, (laughs) right? That would feel discouraging, right? And he says, you know, if, if you get worn out running with your peers, how in the world will you be able to run with horses? Now, as I read that statement or that question, There's a couple things that kind of trigger in my mind uh, uh, just intuitively. Number one, I didn't know I was supposed to run with horses, right? But it would appear from the context that maybe God expects Jeremiah to sort of, in a metaphorical kind of a way, run with horses. Is he going to be able to do that? 
in his present condition? No, because he gets worn out running with humans. Worn out, frail, two-legged humans. And so the problem is sometimes we run with humans because we think we can. And we can run with humans with human strength and with human tools and with human resources. And we can kind of do it ourselves. And if we work real hard, we can kind of make it happen to run with humans and not get weary. But God wants much greater race from Jeremiah and from us. So consider this. Number one, the race is humanly impossible. We cannot outrun a horse. We cannot outrun a horse. But it would appear that God expects us to do that. So, do we have any clues as to how that's possible? What would be the best commentary on the Scripture? Matthew Henry? Spurgeon? What's the best commentary on Scripture? Scripture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Paul says, you know, because the New Testament talks about races, right? So if we're running a race with a horse, that's a race. So we want to see what, what, can we, what can we learn about races. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Can I just say this just briefly? Because I don't say this kind of thing very much. I try not to, at least. You know, um, when we fight this fight, when we journey this journey, when we run this race called life, right? Who's the one that carries us? Jesus. Who's the one that strengthens us? Jesus. Who gives us power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Who, who does all that? But there's, there is a piece of this, and I'm just, I don't because I never like to be uh, too uh, exhortational. How's that? But let me just tell you this. There is a piece that Paul tells the Corinthians, and I believe it applies to us, that if you're going to run a race, and by the way, this Christian life is like a race. If you're going to run it, run it like you mean it. We've, we're all here because this is church, Right? And as Christians, we are in a race. We're not on a stroll. We're in a race. And we need to run like we're in a race. And we're in, when we're in a race, one guy crosses the tape first. Now, thankfully, in our case... All believers, you know, are gods, right? But for our perspective, from our side of things, we need to run like we mean it. 
I got to tell you, um, when I was in uh, junior high, if you went to public school, you remember like seventh grade gym class? Pretty traumatizing. Pretty traumatizing. And, uh, you know, the 440 was the one time around the lap. Remember that? Remember that? And uh, when I was in seventh grade, there was a pack of guys running around that, la that, that lap. And there was one guy, this math seems mathematically impossible, but it always seemed to be the case. There was one guy that was two laps behind in a one-lap race. <laughs> right? And the other guys were like, we got to get to our next class, you know, and the teacher's waiting for me to cross the line, right? And the other guys are like, come on, come on, let's, you know, they're eating lunch while I'm finishing the, the 440, right? I would have loved to have been able to do that. I was just a slow kid. But anyway, that's another story. It's a wonder I'm so well adjusted now. <laughs> but when we run the race, thank God the Christian race gives us better equipment than I had in seventh grade. When we run the race, and I'm just, I'll just say this. I'll say this and then I'll move on. Is that okay? I see too many people, not necessarily in this room, okay, but I'll just say this. I see too many people running the Christian race as if they're walking a dog. And I don't, I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm beyond the point where I'm, I'm no longer mad at those people. It's, the Lord's taken me on this journey a little bit like these guys, Asaph and Job and Habakkuk. I'm not mad at those people anymore, but I'm grieved for those people. I'm grieved for a Christian who's going to go to heaven and sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty forever. But I'm grieved for the life that they experience on this earth. It breaks my heart. Because I know what's available. I know what's available. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Everybody runs. But one guy is going to get the prize. Run it like you want to be the guy. Run it like you want to be that guy. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to, to obtain a stupid little, I like what Paul says, a stupid little circular piece of metal, perishable crown, he says. But therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I run deliberate. I run intentional not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, wasting energy, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I shall become disqualified. So just take that for what it is. Run the race like you want to win. Run the way, race like you want to win. You don't run a race like you're walking a dog. Turn to the right. First Corinthians. What else do we have to know about, our, about this journey that we're on, this race? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. 
kind of in the same tone, the same vibe a little bit. Paul, the same letter to the same people. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor or your race is not in vain in the Lord. Keep your eye on the prize, right? Because it's not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The fact that our work in the Lord is not in vain is what keeps us going. And it keeps us focused properly. And then finally, my, probably my favorite verse about racing. Anybody? Hebrews 12. Chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. These are just powerful verses in the context of running a race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now let me pause there for a second. Sometimes you think of this verse, and I heard a guy explain it this week, and I like this. You know, sometimes we think of passive witnesses like, uh, like witnesses on a, let's say there's a golf match or something, right? You're watching the Masters. All the people lined up. What are they? They're witnesses, right? They're just kind of like, oh, yeah, la-di-da. They're just watching, right? But there's another kind of witnesses, right? Like a courtroom witness. Like I was there, I've experienced this situation, and I, I have something to, to offer to the case that's at hand here, right? Well, remember, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask what's it? Therefore, and chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews says, therefore, what's the therefore? It's the culmination, it's the sort of the culmination of chapter 11. What's chapter 11? Hey, there were all these awesome saints in the Old Testament that all went the distance. They all ran a race like they were not walking a dog. They ran a race like they're trying to get the prize. Some of them paid a dear price. Well, they all paid a dear price. But they were diligent. They were the kind of people you want to be. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? And what are these witnesses testifying? They're testifying you can do it. Why are they testifying you can do it? Because they did it, right? What's the point of Hebrews chapter 11 transitioning into therefore of Hebrews chapter 12? The point is these guys, I mean, you could go through the list, right? I won't go through the whole list. It's tempting, but I won't. (laughs) They were an awesome group of guys and gals, right? They went the distance. They were faithful to do what God had called them to do. They ran the race like they were going to win the prize, like they wanted to win the prize. And therefore, they're telling you, they testify of the fact that it's possible. Because do you ever think about this? If we just, like, focus on 2021, America, anemic Christianity, right? I've kind of apologized for being a Christian, right? Because I don't know if God's able to deliver us from COVID or life or the challenges or anything or my grumpy wife or 
for a grumpy husband or my, what did I say, a sort of a pity party? Is that what I said? Of sorts, yeah. Pity party, they can't deliver me. My God can't deliver me. This pity party of sorts. Right? That's the life we, all, we often present ourselves, right? That's what we see modeled for us too often, right? By people that are running the race like they're walking a dog, right? But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let me just suggest that people in Hebrews chapter 12 faced greater obstacles than we face in America in 2021. That's a no-brainer, right? Therefore, since they did it, well, then let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Wow. To me, some, those are some of the most powerful words in all the Bible. Since those guys went the distance, and they did it like they meant it, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know what's interesting? That same seventh grade gym class. Sorry to drag you through my scars. That same seventh grade gym class had a bunch of jocks, athletic guys. I did better in spelling than they did, so I felt okay about my life. Those jocks did the standing long jump. Remember the standing long jump? Right? You stand on a red mat. Was your mat red? blue okay no political references so they would stand on a mat and do a long jump right like a standing long jump there was the running long jump and the standing long jump they would do a standing long jump and they would jump and uh you know all those jocks did that and they got a certain distance and the teacher kind of measured off the distance and i did mine and didn't make news but anyway so uh, they did theirs check this out i'll never forget this stuck in this still sticks in my head they did their jump teacher measured it all measured them all they're all pretty much in the same area and then the teacher takes a silver dollar out of his pocket and he sets it on the mat about a foot beyond where every one of those guys jumped and he tells them now jump again. Every one of them. He looked at me and he says, that won't work for you. <laughs> I kid you not, I remember him saying that. But he was also a math teacher, and I was pretty good at math, so he was okay with me too. Every one of those guys jumped to the coin. It was remarkable. Focus matters. Focus matters. I focus on myself, I sound like Job. Right? I focus on trying to sort out the justice in the world as if, it matter, as if I'm in control of it. I start to sound like Asaph. 
I focus on the situations and all the various things going on in the world. I sound like Habakkuk, right? I focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I start to sound like a guy who's going to go the distance like this great cloud of witnesses did, right? Jeremiah was focused on others. Let's go back to Jeremiah just for a minute and we'll wrap up. So, our task, if we're going to run with horses and not get worn out even by running with footmen, our task is to not focus on ourselves, not focus on others. I mean, even Peter and John. Remember Peter and John after, uh, you know, at, the, at the end there? At the, the dinner? No, it was at the end of John chapter 21, I believe. Jesus, Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about him, right? He said, hey, if he hangs, oh, and this is after Jesus told Peter he's going he's gonna to die. Hey, what about him? Jesus says, if he lives until I come back, it's none of your business, right? It's a great answer, right? So even like, we may not even be looking at sort of the, you know, the evil people of the world, right? We may be looking at other people in this room. Hey, what about him? Jesus says, if, I, if he wants to live until, if I want him to live until I come back, that's, that's between me and him. So, Job was focused on himself. Asaph was focused on others. Habakkuk was focused on the situations. Jeremiah is focused on others. We need to be focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, how do we focus on Jesus? Right? It's, it's kind of like I said, you know, those lessons about marriage, right? Like it's one thing to know them, but it's another thing to kind of absorb them and live them and, and become those things. I think it's that way with us. With, if we're going to focus on Jesus, how do we do that? Well, here's some just not an inclusive list by any means. Number one, I think we reflect with thankfulness for what he's done. Are we thankful people? Are we thankful for what he has done in our lives? We could reflect on the fact that we're saved from sin and destined to heaven only because of Him. I was reading in Luke yesterday, chapter 7, verse 50. You remember the lady that uh, came and uh, poured oil on Him and, and uh, uh, dried it with her hair and was crying and all that carrying on, right? Remember that? And then uh, Jesus gives the... Um, lesson to uh, Simon the Pharisee who said, hey, by the way, you didn't, you know, you didn't kiss me when I came in. And at the end of that, he says to the woman, then he's, Luke chapter 7, verse 50, then he said to the woman, I love it when uh, Jesus speaks simply and with powerful brevity. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How can we focus on Jesus? One way is just to remember that we're saved and therefore go in peace, right? Do I, do I exude peace? You know, peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Does that come out of my life? Or does angst come out of my life, right? 
So let's reflect with thankfulness on what he's done for us. That helps us focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's reflect on the fact that we're saved from sin and we can just go in peace because we know where we're going. He saved us. We can look to the example of his life and the scriptures and all those other uh, saints that have gone before us that witnessed to us. But we're still talking about running with horses, right? It feels impossible in the moment. It feels impossible in the moment. But let me just read this, and then we'll just wrap up Roman. We'll wrap up Jeremiah real quick. Romans 8. Romans 8. Powerful verses. How do I have the strength? Okay, so I'm focused on Jesus. And that's going to help me run with horses. But where do I get the strength to run with a horse? Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you, but you, but you, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit gives us the strength and the power to live the life we're called to live. If God calls us to run with horses, metaphorically, or literally. If God wants you to run with a horse, right? If He wants that, His Holy Spirit can give us the power to do that. It's the same power, He says. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Just get your head around that sentence for a second. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who gave Christ, he who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through the same Spirit, through His Spirit who dwells in you. Anybody lack any equipment to live this life? No. No. Because we're His children and we're empowered by His Holy Spirit. We lack nothing. Second Peter tells us that He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. So, Back to Jeremiah, we'll finish the chapter. Verse 6. For even your brothers, uh, even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. And so, um, even as we read sort of this chapter, God is telling Jeremiah, you got to run with horses. Now we're back to reality, right? Because we just talked about all this, you know, focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't focus on ourselves like Job. Don't focus, you know, on others. Don't focus on our sense of justice. Don't ask God to, you know, why, 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 like we think we're God. But then we've got to live life, right? So he says, even your brothers, you know, they're, they've dealt treacherously with you. They've spoken smooth words. God's going to give Jeremiah discernment. To navigate all that. Again, if we focus on Jesus by the power of the Spirit, we'll have discernment. 
Verse 7, I have, I have forsaken my house, God says. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of their enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me, therefore I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. So in a sense, God is now answering Jeremiah's initial question. He's going to deal with the rebellious house of, Ju of Judah that has rejected him. Notice here he says he's hated his heritage that cries out against him. He doesn't hate any one person, but he hates what they have become. He hates the, uh, the rejection that they have dealt him. Verse 10, many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They've trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. Now, the idea here, and we won't read this in the interest of time, this goes back, the idea of the vineyard points back to a metaphor in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, where he says the, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. And God says, you know, I, I, I planted this vineyard, I used, basically, I, I used all the right plants, you know, I, I did everything that was needed for the vineyard to produce a fruitful crop but it just produced thorns and garbage. And that's the nation of Israel. And interestingly, when Jesus came and uh, he pointed out the parable of, the, you remember the unjust stewards, he says a man planted a vineyard, went on a journey, right? Left it in the hand of stewards and they were unjust stewards and ultimately they killed the, the, the heir, the son of, the, of the, the vineyard owner. Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, it's, written, it's mentioned three times in the, in, the, in the Gospels. Each time when Jesus says that story, it's followed by these words, the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so this idea of the vineyard, the vineyard is basically... Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. Jesus carries it through to uh, the, the heritage that they have that the, that the Jewish leaders squandered, right? But even, even for us, the vineyard is a picture of the fact that God has given us everything we need to live this life. God planted this vineyard. God, God planted us. God has established us. God died for us. God gives us His Holy Spirit. God gives us His Word so that we can bear fruit. And it's up to us to do that. It's up to us to be faithful to God. Let Him bear fruit in our lives. We don't bear the fruit. He bears the fruit in our lives. But we be faithful to Him. We run with the horses, knowing that our labor is not in vain. And in this case, God points out that the Jews squandered the vineyard. Verse 12, the plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but, to no, not, but do not profit. Be ashamed of your harvest because the fierce, of the fierce anger of the Lord. And so... Um, yeah, the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to bring judgment. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be, after I've plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone 
to his land. And so in the near fulfillment, what he's talking about is that God's going to judge Babylon, uh, who was the neighbor, and God's going to judge all the surrounding areas. God's going to restore order, restore justice, bring the Jews back by his mercy uh, after the 70 years in captivity. And it shall be, verse 16, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my, pe- <clears throat> my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. So the point here is God's grace extends to anybody who will obey his word, to the Gentile nations as well as the Jews. And so this extends into our day, obviously. So, Be careful about questioning the judgment of God. God is smarter than we are. God has much greater perspective than we do. Be careful of looking at ourselves, focusing on ourselves, focusing on others, focusing on our circumstances. Remember that God's perspective is much bigger. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus never starts something that he doesn't finish. Can I tell you this? So sometimes we run our race like we're walking a dog. Or sometimes we slip and fall and we feel like, oh man. Sometimes we feel discouraged. Like we're not overcoming like we should. But guess what? Jesus never starts something that he doesn't finish. Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we all need to keep in mind that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength to do this job, this job of living the Christian life. It's a victorious life. It's an abundant life. It's a rich life. It's a good life so long as we keep our focus where it needs to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you equip us. We thank you even for these words that Jeremiah um, dipped into a bit of a pity party so that we could learn. We thank you that Job did the same thing. We thank you that Asaph did the same thing. We thank you that Habakkuk did the same thing. And Lord, so we can learn. But we thank you also, Lord, that you give us all we need. That you've given us your Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and can give life to our mortal bodies. We thank you that you've called us to run a race and you've equipped us to run the race as if we're running with horses. Lord, honestly, we don't always feel like we're running with horses. Sometimes we feel like we're barely crawling or stumbling. And yet, we know your word is true. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would give us that victory. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.